Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Look, I think regardless of whether or not the election is this year, this is an election year. This is the year that everyone is going to be judging both parties on. Hello, lovely people at Podcast, and welcome back to the show. I'm Catherine Murphy, your host, and with me in the podcast this week is Amy Ramikas, Daniel Hurst, and Paul Carp. Look at us being slick. <laughs> anyway, today we are doing the first of what we hope will be a number of episodes this year, which is sort of our version of Ask Me Anything, basically. <laughs> But lamer. (laughs) (laughs) But definitely lamer. Uh, Yes, we have asked. Regular listeners will know that I usually do long-form interviews with parliamentarians and other people, and we'll obviously continue doing that through the year. But periodically I want to get my peeps into the cave. We're going to put questions out to the audience because there's lots of stuff going along a lot of the time and people don't always keep up with the intricacies in the detail or they have just genuine questions that we, because we're so enmeshed in the process, don't always ask ourselves basic questions. So that's why we're thinking about having these episodes also because I want you to get to know my fabulous team more. So even if that... Is that a grammatical? dangerous. dangerous. No, I'm just worrying about grammar before danger. No, I think that makes sense. You're the, you you guys are the grammar experts. Is that right? I defer to Paul. Doesn't even matter. It didn't hear any (laughs) clangers. It's it's all right. Don't worry. Let's press on. I hope I haven't tuned tuned out already. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, no, we're going to nail this. So we're recording on Thursday. So when I say today, earlier on, uh, on socials, I put out a call for questions we got a bunch back, all of them great. First one we're going to start with is a question from a listener about the real status of the COVID-19 vaccination program. Now, I want to start here because we, I think, all agree in here that vaccinations and this program is going to be the biggest political story of the year alongside a number of others that we're going to cover in this conversation. So, Paul, you have been following this at our end over the last little bit. What's the what's the answer to the question? Where are we up to with this? It's pretty much where they said that we would be at the end of, of last year in that Pfizer has been approved. Uh, the first batch of Pfizer is going to be delivered in late February, early March. Uh, AstraZeneca is awaiting approval. We're going to eventually, by the end of March, be producing that locally in Australia. Over summer, Anthony Albanese you know, said, once these are approved, why aren't we rolling them out sooner? 
that sort of gave the government a bit of a scare. They brought it forward a few weeks, the rollout, but then it turns out there were delays in in the Pfizer delivery. So the timeline ended up being very similar to what they'd originally thought. And there are a few sort of storm clouds on the horizon, things like the EU has an export control where they can stop vaccines produced there from being exported. They haven't applied that to Australia yet, but there are difficulties in ramping up uh, the capacity for production is actually, you know, paradoxically slowing down when the first doses of, of Pfizer are supposed to come. Why is that happening? Well, because they're, they're like they're retooling all their, their factories to yeah. produce more of them, but right. that's, that means that the first doses aren't being produced as quickly. And so there are, yeah, and every country wants to be first in terms of getting getting the first the first batch. Yeah. So when they say the real pace of the real state yeah, of the program, real state. I think maybe the concern they're referring to is that there's not a lot of detail. We know who all the priority groups are and how many there are in those groups, but the federal government hasn't told the states, for instance, how many, you know, how many vaccines they're getting when. Mm. And so that level of granularity. In other countries, you can pop into a, you know, into a calculator your age and characteristics and where you live and, and, and get like and down to the you week a, when yeah. you're getting it. Good, yeah. good luck getting that level of information at the moment. But I don't think it's a conspiracy. I mean, I just think that I just think they don't know. There's yes. also a point that Paul raised a couple of weeks ago is that the the vaccine is voluntary but required and we don't actually know what that, that will mean in mm. the real world yet and it seems quite difficult, as, as Paul has found out, to try and get an answer on that. Yeah, and, and again, sort of looping back to Paul's point about it's not necessarily a conspiracy but it's it, a lot of this stuff we are, well, the governments are making up as they go along and some of this stuff is genuinely outside their control. So on Amy's point of, uh, what did you say, voluntary? Voluntary but, but required. required. Yes. So the point being, like, you might not be allowed on an aircraft until you get a vaccine, mm. for example. All of that sort of stuff, I guess, will play out over the course of next year. But, but I've just actually got a simpler question. So for Paul or any of you, if we've got thoughts about this, Paul referenced in setting up the answer to this that Labor over the summer started to kick up this question. Why is everybody else, well, not everybody else in the world, but why are a number of other countries in the world rolling out a vaccine now, but the vaccine is not being rolled out here? It is, a, it is an interesting question. Like Scott Morrison said, well, we don't need to because... We're not in an emergency. Exactly, like, exactly. You know, but do we buy that? Mm. I can see the point, but I can also see that in terms of the world stage, Australia is, you know, not insignificant, but not over the top power. I can see how we would fall down the list, especially since it isn't an emergency situation here. But I I do have to wonder, did we advocate at the right times and earlier enough to, to be in the line. We did hear often that we're at the front of the line, but we never had any proof of that. And now the proof is, well, no, actually we're not because there's quite a few other countries who are, as you point out, rolling it out. So what happened at those points of advocacy and where did we drop the ball? Mm, yeah, I think that's an interesting question. It's sort of a rear view mirror question now, but it is, but it is an interesting one. Whether we were 
offensive, offensive enough in running down supplies. I think they were explained well that we were doing full approval, not emergency approval, but they were always quite bad at explaining what the sort of four to six weeks in between approval and the first jabs going in arms, what that time was for. And that's where they shortened that period. They said they were going to accelerate that, but then it blew out again because there are so many other countries that are already delivering vaccines that there was that there was a supply, supply constraint. Yeah. So in fairness to them, we're doing full approval, but yeah, I think that there is that delay because of other countries all, all wanting it at the same mm-hmm. time. And I think it is true that, you know, it is helpful that we're able to look at what how these are rolled out elsewhere because we haven't been in that emergency situation. But I think... People's anxiety might be lifting slightly given the recent outbreaks we've seen, the cases in um, breaking out of hotel quarantine, the sort of UK and South African variants. I think those those more recent outbreaks and developments might be giving the general public a bit more concern about waiting. Mm, waiting, exactly. And, and one more thing before we move off, because we've got a bit to get through. The National Press Club this week, Mary Louise McLaws, she is an epidemiologist who advises the WHO. She gave a very crystallising stat that made me sit back in my chair, which is that we'll need to roll out 190,000 injections a day. <laughs> in order to get this thing happening. Which sounds like a lot. And I was talking to a friend. <laughs> it's who, kind of like, that's the understatement. <laughs> it's a lot of and, and there's all these practicalities around that too. I was talking to a friend who's involved in, in one element of this. And, you know, if you're vaccinating people against COVID, it doesn't eliminate all the social distancing requirements and so on. And they've got, usually have to wait 15 minutes once people have had a jab to make sure that there's no adverse reaction and so on, minor adverse reactions. And so the people who've received them would have to be distanced from others. And there's all these practical things that they're working through. So that number is would be well, it's just a, it's a mind focusing number it's it sure just is. you know it's but i mean in america like they're vaccinating huge numbers of people a day and in britain now too so obviously as daniel says like once you crank up this rollout and you work out how those systems work and the government's activating pharmacies and other you know things i mean we're not i don't think we're, any of us are predicting disaster here i think we're just sort of saying Ooh, that's a lot of moving parts. Yeah, you have to wonder whether they're going to include schools in that rollout, whether you have the school nurse start to roll, like line up kids as we get further down the track and things. It does seem like a huge number. And I, and I think the point everyone's making is there's so many unknowns, some of them not the government's fault because they don't know it themselves yet, but others that there's just not enough information out there for people to feel comfortable with how the program is being handled. And I think more information people People have about exactly what is going to happen and when, the more people are going to be like, okay, I'm going to plan for this and I'm going to step up and I'm going to get my vaccine. Mm. Any more thoughts, Paul, before we move off? I was just going to say all the logistics are really weird. I mean, once we got our head around how cold you have to keep the Pfizer vaccine to ship it around, then there are these other things like once you open a batch, you have to have enough people that are eligible for the vaccine all all kind of gathered around to jab them one after the other or or the the extra vials in the batch go go, uh, go bad. So we're learning a lot about the the logistics. There was actually an MP in in the UK who was accused of jumping the queue because he happened to be near uh, one of these vials that was about to go bad. They said, well, we might as well do this now, <laughs> even though he's middle middle aged and wasn't particularly susceptible. But he was also a hospital volunteer. But you know, 
that was found <laughs> that shows, story curious. Just shows what right could place happen. at the right time. Yes, exactly. Okay, well, enough on vaccines. Obviously, we will revisit this subject during the year. Never fear, and we will track closely. Our next question from our listeners is one for Amy. Has Labor? This was pretty much how it was expressed. Has Labor learned anything from the election loss? First point, mm-hmm. uh, and also. Uh, from another listener, but sort of related, which is why I've done them in the batch. Do we think? Do we actually think there'll be a federal election this year? Mm. So let's start with Labor. Yeah, both both very interesting questions. Um, Labor has obviously learned lessons from the last election. I think we can all see that in the fact that you know the policy platform as we see it right now is very small and it is concise and it is targeted at particular groups. So we know that Labor's own research has shown that it needs to win back working women, working mothers in particular. It needs to win back young people and it needs to win back people who have been left uh, behind in skill shortages, young or old workers. And so we're seeing policies being targeted to those people. You have the childcare policy to try and get working women, you know, back on back on the labour bandwagon. Then you have the super policies that are coming up and the defence of that. Then you have the IR uh, fight that labour has whirled up and you're also seeing a, a big kind of grassroots, but it's still a big campaign on upskilling people and getting them ready for new technologies and just new areas of work. So we have seen that. We've also seen them push back against all questions um, across, you know, every office in this press gallery about costings and what they're doing about things like, you know, economic policies like franking credits and negative gearing. They've said, we're not doing it, but what are we doing with that money? Well, you'll have to wait and find out. And I was having a chat to an MP who said that it's very possible Possible to win elections without a policy platform, and they pointed to Scott Morrison's 2019 win as an example of that. Or Kevin Rudd. Or Kevin Rudd from a state example. Anastasia Palaszczuk didn't have a huge policy platform, and and she but being not Campbell Newman. Yes, exactly. But then in the most recent election too, not a lot of new policies other than we will rebuild from COVID, and they picked up five seats. So there are lessons that Labor has won. Of course, when it comes to the election, they have to try and overcome the incumbent factor there. It's very hard, as we've seen, for oppositions to win against governments in a case like the pandemic, but they haven't given up hope. And I think, as Paul's pointed out, and Hursty will, you you were seeing Labor actually begin to fight for the first time in over a year. They're actually starting to stand against policies. We're not so much seeing, you know, what was labelled bitch and fold anymore. They're bitching and holding now. <laughs> bitch and hold. Bitch and hold. Which for a lot of people is like, you know, is is a huge step forward because you need to have a strong opposition to have a strong democracy. Okay. And what about elections? What do we think? Look, I think regardless of whether or not the election is this year, this is an election year. This is the year that everyone is going to be judging both parties on. And I think it's going to really depend on the economy and how everything goes past March and JobKeeper um, as to whether Scott Morrison decides to go early or not. I think if the economy is looking good by August, October, when we have that big parliamentary break, I think there is a chance that he'll just pull the pin and just say, let's get it over and done with. I think if that hurt that we see coming up in the next few weeks extends 
weekends beyond that, we probably won't see it until April, May next year. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anyone got any radically different thoughts to that? Oh, I was just going to say the questions whether they've sort of overlearned the lessons of the last election and that they, you know, they, they lost. Fighting the last war. You yeah, mean. fighting the last mm-hmm. war. You know, they, they think they lost because they too much taxing and too much spending. So they, they've ditched a lot of the tax policies like, like franking credits. But, you know, is that going too far and throwing out the baby with the bathwater because the the situation that you're in, you know, you've got like the first recession in 30 years. Maybe now is is the time to be outflanking them on on the spending side and and to be so worried about how that went last time when the economic conditions are completely different, you know. Mm. Yeah, it's a good good thought. And one more before I move to Daniel, who's going to field the next very large question. (laughs) Just one more thought, because the, the listener who posed this question, part of the framing for the question was, like, for example, will Labor be hoist on its own petard in a climate debate by being able to tell, not having an answer to the question about how much the transition will cost, right? Like, have they learnt those lessons? Now, I would have said yes before I saw Tony Burke in an interview this week on the ABC talking about Labor's IR proposals, completely unable to scramble and articulate a line on how much it costs. So I, I agree with everything here. I think there are all, there's all kinds of evidence of learning and Paul's point's interesting about fighting the last war, but whether they're tuned on that fine grain stuff, like can you think on your feet? Have you got an explanation at the ready when somebody asks you either a reasonable question or a, or a stupid one? You've still got to have an answer for it. Mm. So anyway, I just thought that was sort of moderately interesting. Now to Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Where are we up to with uh, relations with China, Daniel? Well... <laughs> That's a small question. The tensions continue, but I'm inclined to make a prediction, which may be the type of prediction that is wrong within five minutes of being made. But Mm -hmm. it seems that things have settled down. Oh, it it seems like things Mm -hmm. have settled down. What I mean, I don't mean that it's fixed. What I mean is that there's, if you think back to September, October last year, or you know the second half of last year, there was a period there where it was almost every day or every week that there was some new development, Mm -hmm. particularly on trade actions against Australian export sectors. That hasn't happened for a while. There hasn't been new, there hasn't been, it hasn't been fixed, but there, there's been sort of no additional trade actions taken since, you know, I think would have been, you know, late last year. Now, why do you think that is? I, I think there's a couple of reasons, but one is, I mean, the big picture is China, the big relationship is China and the US. And at the moment, they're looking to find their feet under the new Biden administration. So like, from Beijing's perspective, the big relationship that matters is with Washington and, yeah. and where that where that washes up. We're sort of a bit in that slipstream. But I also think that the series of trade actions rolled out last year by Beijing, Australia, the Australian government sort of has stuck to its guns. But there hasn't really been a lot of thundering criticism from the Australian side lately either. Mm. And I, I think I think they're kind of both sides at the moment are in a position where they're just waiting to see where things wash up. Yeah, so maybe... So I don't... So I just contrast that to last year where it was really heated. They're sort of in a holding pattern at the moment. Mm. There's one exception to that, which obviously this week there was the news that Chung Lee, an Australian citizen, had been formally arrested. She was detained nearly six months ago. She's an Australian citizen. She was working as an anchor for CGTN, which is a Chinese state-owned broadcaster. And um, on Monday, the Chinese... 
Foreign Ministry confirmed, after Maurice Payne made public, that Ms Cheng had been formally arrested by the Chinese authorities on suspicion of illegally providing state secrets to foreign forces. There's no further details on that. The accusations have never been detailed at length, and needless to say, Ms Cheng denies those allegations. Even in the reaction to that, it was a fairly restrained response from the Australian mm. side, I think. Mm. It was well, we sort of a that. general statement of, you know, we just want her to be treated humanely. And the Chinese um, government told Australia to butt out of meddling in their internal affairs, but that's a very bread and butter line that they use. Mm. Yeah, but we but we do tend to see the Australian government go quiet when these situations arise because it's a lot of backroom diplomacy, mm. isn't it? Yeah, that... and it doesn't help to have com- when you've got a citizen like that, you know, to have commentary out there. But like sort of big picture, she was detained nearly six months ago. So this is not really a new development. It's yeah, not surprising yeah. in the Chinese system that that would move to a formal arrest and then potential charges might happen. It might yeah. or may not be laid but within about would. seven months from now. So that's yeah. that's progressing. Uh, meanwhile, there's no new trade actions. I think that um, Beijing is waiting to see what happens in the relationship yeah, this Yeah, de- this de-escalation point is, is really interesting and I, I'm glad you've crystallised it because it's sort of... It, you know, it washes over all of us, doesn't it? But there, there is this sort of hiatus. But as you say, it's kind of like could be, could be, G waiting to at any point, what, subject to change exactly, at any point. Exactly. And and this week, President Biden had his first call after being inaugurated with President Xi. Yes. And there's not going to be any sudden shift in U.S. policy. The harder line that Trump adopted is here to stay. But interestingly, Biden, while he in the call <laughs> apparently challenged. She on human rights and on unfair economic competition, as Biden put it. He also stressed that he wanted to be able to cooperate on things like climate change, mm. health and non-proliferation of arms. So he's, Biden has said that he'll look for practical ways to work with China where it's in America's interests and where it's in the interests of America's allies. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. OK, the next one is sort of for Daniel and sort of for me because we both have been looking at this in sort of through slightly different lenses. Again, from a listener, how likely are we to see serious climate sanctions against Australia from the Europe and uh, UK about climate change? It's about this blue that we've... Um, well, it's been going on for some time, but it's <laughs> had, a, had, a, had a strange just sort of lurch into the postmodern over the last few days. So just quick background, the EU and the UK are a couple of jurisdictions talking about how you might use trade and other levers in order to force a more level playing field between a country that is taking climate action and a country that is not taking climate action. And the point being taking climate action may increase the costs of goods and services. If other countries are not doing that, well, then they sort of get a leg up. So we can do this pretty snappily, Daniel, I reckon. Serious? Not serious. What do you reckon? It is serious. It's a, it, it's a growing in momentum, strong support in Europe. It's a big vote, 58 in favour, eight against at a, at a European parliamentary committee last yep. week. Yep. The US is considering it. The UK is considering it. It's it's going in momentum. It will it'll become a thing. Yeah. It will become a thing. Yeah. Oh, but great. but yeah. what is unclear is exactly how it would affect Australia because the design 
it hasn't been designed yet. Yes. So we don't actually know. Yes, that's, that's like right. the mechanism that the Morrison government well, talking the, the about. Well, the non-existent <laughs> mechanism. At least this one is a putative <laughs> mechanism. I mean, you know, let's let's be honest. But yeah, so there, there's lots to go on this story. We will, I, I promise, listeners, we will follow this very closely over the course of the next twelve months and beyond. It is a very very interesting twist in the climate debate. And I agree with Daniel, it is serious. To what extent, when push comes to shove, that these countries really push this issue with Australia, I think is still to be tested. But we're certainly on a trajectory where this will will be a live and real issue over the next 12 months. Okay, so that is that. Now, Paul, we're back to you. So this question is, I, I remember, because it's a lot of these questions, I'm not naming people because they've come from Twitter and not everybody uses their real name on Twitter, but this one was Jane Carrow, who most definitely uses her real name on Twitter. Hello, Jane, if you're listening. Very good question. So Jane's question is, with negative immigration, a falling birth rate, no international students, the China trade stoush, notwithstanding hiatuses in that, with welfare about to be cut, where does economic recovery come from? Uh, well, well, one caveat on the China thing, I would, I would say, is that that's affected some sectors really badly, like coal and wine, but actually iron ore price and volume is up. So yep. that one isn't actually as big a, you know, a, big yeah, a drag. Good point. No, no, good to point. To the economy, yeah. Yeah, good point. But the others, the others are all real drags. I agree with that. In terms of where recovery comes from, you know, Josh Frydenberg, the treasurer, would say, you know, there are lots of other programs that are still running, things like the job maker hiring credit, things like instant expensing and, and loss carry back and all those all those fancy accounting tricks that are that are all gonna that save business money and then they can they can invest mm-hmm. more. So those will continue beyond March and with the, the withdrawal of JobKeeper. Then there's also, you know, the possibility of extra programs for special cases. Although JobKeeper is ending, the aviation and tourism sector are still affected by you know, government bans on, on international travel. And yep. so the government accepts that there's a case that they're, that they're going to have to do something there. Then you've got the household savings, you know, that's been built up through the pandemic year because paradoxically during, a, you know, people were able to to put money away, both because of everything being shut, so not, not a lot to spend it on, but also JobKeeper and the coronavirus on JobSeeker meant that households that normally can't save anything because they're living, you know... Hand to mouth. Hand to mouth, had slightly more income. So the government wants them to to sort of unleash that spending ability. But it's, you know, that's an open question whether that will happen and whether the support's being cut uh, or removed entirely in the case of JobKeeper means that, you know, people snap their wallets shut. And that's that's something that's still to be seen. The government's also sort of banking on creative destruction that, you know, because some sectors have still got it really bad, but there are lots of job ads, people are going to, you know, the right people are going to find their way from the, from the sectors that are suffering to the ones that are still going well. And, you know, while it's true that all the p- predictions of unemployment so far you know, have been surprises on the upside. Unemployment didn't peak at, you know, almost 10% or, you know, it, it's gone down to 66 yeah. now. While all the surprises have been on the upside, I think confidence is very hard to predict. And there being the right match of, of skills when, you know, some industries are suffering and, and others are booming is still, you know, not, not clear. And mm-hmm. we have seen drops in the participation rate and just people who have just dropped out of the labour market 
entirely it as is, well. It's recovered more recently. It but, has, but, your, but yes. But yes so yeah, like yeah. I'm just saying, like while the official rate didn't reach those, you know, dire predictions, the unofficial rate definitely. Yeah, in, in the real world. Yeah, yeah, there are these effects. Any other thoughts? I've I've got a couple because I've been listening to the Treasury Secretary Stephen Kennedy at a committee today, so I've got a couple of quick thoughts. Well, on we this. heard. We I was going to say we heard some of your exhales, so I'm very interested. In <laughs> oh, no, it was, it was actually quite interesting. Though his his evidence today is quite interesting. But uh, but uh, more thoughts on this, uh, or has Paul oh, sort well, of framed it off? Paul's neatly? framed it really well. Okay. And look, well, let's not forget the, the the human aspect that when you know the RBA talks about there might be blips, like unemployment might increase in March, that that has a big human impact, even if the headline number doesn't go up. Yeah, exactly. And those families who were living hand-to-mouth and got yeah. to save, their savings aren't in the tens of thousands of dollars we're talking, you no, know. exactly. You People know, have got yeah. very small buffers. Exactly. Yeah. And they run out very, very, very quickly. And I'm not sure that all of the government policies take that into account. Yeah, no, that's right. In terms of uh, just, I would just add two things. One, just because... Jane did flag the immigration point, the hiatus on immigration, and Kennedy didn't address this today in evidence. I'll summarise that in a tick, but just that immigration point. That is a serious constraint on growth and recovery, uh, and I think that's the practical impacts of that are yet to wash through the economy. I mean, pe- friends I know who have small businesses who can't get staff are literally tearing their hair out, wanting to know when the hell they can possibly get people back in the country in order to uh, take advantage of growth opportunities that will come in the recovery. And the government, I noticed that Julian Lees's parliamentary committee is starting to look at that issue. And I, I think that's a real, that's going to be a real bolter this year in terms of pressure from business, mm. because there's just so many people tearing their hair about it. The quick version of Stephen Kennedy today was, look, recovery is kind of Uh, bolted in now, we think. But we know this period where income support's going to be withdrawn is going to be rough. We, We know that. We're not anticipating job losses in the millions or even in the hundreds of thousands, but basically the labour market has been recovering and now we're going to have a flat period in the labour market because people will lose their jobs. Uh, There's no getting around that. Mm. And then in broader macro terms, it was just basically, well, look, if we can, we've we've come through this well economically, one, because of the fiscal supports, and two, because we've had an effective public health response, unlike most of the rest of the world. Mm. So while ever we have an effective public health response, and Kennedy was at pains to mm. give a shout out to the states, including Victoria. Mm-hmm. Hi, guys. You did a good job. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you. Mm. You know, while ever the health response holds up, we've got some prospect of recovery, even with the constraints that are built in through a closed border. Mm. But there's also, I'll just make one last point on that. Yep. We don't know what the job seeker rate is going mm. to be. No, no, no. March. And that's really important. And we're losing yep. the 150 COVID fortnightly sub, um, mm. subsidy in um, a couple of weeks as well and I, I think there's a lot of people who have never been on unemployment before who are about to get a huge shock yeah. and I, again, yeah, I don't yeah. think that that is something that the government has 
taken into account and people need certainty. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And as Philip Lowe says, it's a fairness issue. Yeah. As well as, an, as, well as an Oh, yeah, exactly. As well as a macroeconomic it's issue. Never been, it's never been livable, not for the last, definitely last decade. Yeah. But And we've been holding people back before it. And we're about to see a lot more people go onto it. And that has massive impacts on society at large. Yeah. It'll be genuinely really interesting to see where the government lands on this over the next couple of weeks. Okay, so that's the economy. Now, time's against us, sadly, and so we've got two more to go, but I'm just going to lump. Um, we got a number of questions which you would expect from our listeners and readers about accountability, and this government seems to be incredibly good at ducking and running, avoiding questions, turning questions back on questioners. There seems to be certainly a level of frustration out there among some of our readers and listeners about the government uh, getting getting away with, you know, sort of well, being able to get away with anything, basically. So just uh, this is actually could be a whole pod, but time is a Guinness, so let's be snappy. Um, you know, how can we, how can we change this? How can we apply some accountability in situations where the government is resolved to not answer questions. Daniel, you look like you've got a thought on oh, this. It's tricky because there's so many demands on media at the moment that the government often thinks they can just tough things out and just refuse to answer questions. And as much as we try, we I'm talking about The Guardian and, and a number of colleagues, the news cycle does move on pretty quickly. I think the short answer is journalists banding together at press conferences would be a really good thing to do when we hear that there isn't an answer given to really persist with that question. Because if they're not giving an answer to that question, there's a reason the question needs to be answered. Mm. Mm. A bit more coll- collegiate bit more behaviour. But that's tricky when everybody, every media outlet has their own issue that they've been asked to Yeah, we should know, explain chase. that to people because it's sort of, I think sometimes, I, I totally agree with your point and I reckon by the look on all of our faces <laughs> we all agree with that point. <laughs> Hunting as a pack. Uh, absolutely. Uh, critical mass. Uh, but we, we should explain to people who live outside our world that sometimes the reason that doesn't happen is not because people don't want to be collegiate, but because people come to a press conference with their own agenda. They want to they want to get a certain line or a certain insight out of that appearance. Yeah, so if a journalist is going so. to a press conference, they might know that they're writing about a particular issue that day, so they'll be asking whoever's in front of them about yeah, that issue. Exactly. That's, a, that's just what I mean. I just think we should show our methods there because other, otherwise people don't always understand that, that people are coming with a, either instructions you know, benign instructions like this is a this is an important story. Can we ask this question? So that's a bit why we don't work as a pack. But I totally believe that we should. Yeah, Amy, you've yeah. got a thought. Well, I was going to say, like, Hursty and I both come from a state political background, and it's a lot easier to hunt as a pack because mm. the issues tend to be what we're all writing about or all broadcasting, mm. which makes it easier to stand there and just have you know five, six people asking the same question until you get an answer. I think we as the media as a whole, do need to do a better job of realising that the accountability issue is something that is impacting a lot of people and how they consume news and their trust in the product that we're creating. I think that showing press conferences live and how the sausage has been made Mm. has contributed to that Mm. a little bit. And I'm not saying we should hide 
the press conferences, but a lot of the times we're asking questions to try and get a response, not necessarily because we believe the premise of the question. Uh, we need to... we. We try and elicit answers in as many different ways as we possibly can, but showing press conferences sometimes makes it look like we're attacking a line that people are going, well, why are you bullying this person? Particularly if it's a politician that you agree with. If it's a politician you don't agree with, you, you know, you're not you, bullying. You're enough. not bullying. You mm. want people to go harder. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a very tricky line, but um, we do need to work out how better to serve our audiences mm. on it. Paul, have you got a thought? Well... As as journalists, we turn up and do our job and we do our best. I don't know how we can force them to answer questions, sadly. I, I just want to broaden it out to what we as citizens can do, not just as journalists, which is to find people that are not aware of these gaps in accountability or find, and, and sort of explain explain how that has an impact. You know, if, if you were at a sports club that was dudded in the community sport infrastructure grant program, like don't just go on, on Twitter and, and, and shout for the benefit of your 10 followers or whatever, like go and explain to people in your community what, what was involved in, you know, putting together an application that was, was overlooked. That sort, that sort of thing is what you know, community groups like the the movement, the voice movement for the independents like Kathy McGowan started out with, you know, kitchen table conversations. It It's very hard to make these things, you know, count in politics if you're not, you know, reaching out to other people, making connections, persuading people of things rather than sort of just screaming into the void. Exactly. And just picking up on that point, just before we move to the final one, it's, it's uh, as Paul says, it's like it's a matter of... Um, uh, uh, well, it's a matter, let's be frank, of us doing our job, <laughs> turning up every day with a single-minded objective to do our job. It's also up to citizens to organise, as Paul says, substantively, constructively, to try and make things better. Also, though, I think something that doesn't happen enough while we're on the free advice front um, <laughs> is that if people are watching Amy's sausage-making press conference point, if you're watching on at home and you really don't like... What, what is happening, how you don't like a politician brushing off an answer, refusing to engage or whatever, ring the office, mm -hmm. write a letter. You're raise the, the that politician? Yes, raise that point. Mm. So people raise lots of points with parliamentarians all the time, right? Whether this road is, you know, this road ain't working or, you know, I don't know, some other issue of great importance. I'm not knocking it. You know, obviously everybody wants roads to function, schools to function, hospitals to function. But I th I don't know how many people actually write a letter to their parliamentarian. You mean raise the cost, raise well, the cost of dodging questions exactly. or raise the Just cost say, of being shifty. Exactly. Yeah. I'm a voter. <laughs> I saw that press conference. I saw you not answer questions. We can all see you. Don't do it. And the confidence with which, for example, this week Greg Hunt dismissed Michael Rowland on mm. the ABC oh. for mm. asking a question about using the Liberal Party logo on a government announcement, which was what we saw during the bushfire crisis as well when they released the ADF troops. They put a Liberal Party branding yeah. on what was a, an Australian government policy just his confidence and just being like, well, I knew you'd ask me that. Nobody cares about that. Well, tell them you care mm, because exactly. mm. it's very easy to, dis to dismiss us as the bubble and politicians do it all the time, but they can't dismiss you as easier. And don't do it on, don't, don't, talk to other people on social media about it and expect that a, par a parliamentarian has registered that, write a letter 
to them, to the office, pick up the phone to the office. It's quite easy for parliamentarians to dismiss conversations on social media as being the sort of province of you know highly Trolls engaged. And yeah, exactly. And, yeah. Even when it's their own MPs' it, accounts. All of that. <laughs> no, no, all true, all true. But like you know, a little bit of practical action, dare we say, may make a difference. Now we're just ending on a whimsical note because I did love this question from. <laughs> from uh, one of our readers and listeners. And it's really about how COVID is changing us, how COVID is making us different as people. Um, The question was, does anybody think a year ahead anymore? (laughs) Did people think a year ahead is my Uh. question. (laughs) Oh, well, that's a good question, isn't it? See, I'm I'm not a planner, so I probably got through the pandemic, the height of it, a little bit easier because I'm used to just kind of like getting by on the seat of my pants and just sort of rolling with whatever happens. No, but it's sort of like more... I mean, that's it's a really interesting rebuttal. No, it's a really good rebuttal, actually. But it's like... But I think it's sort of... Look, I can't know the mind of our listener, but I think it's like booking a a major holiday next March because, you know, you're going wherever you're going or whatever. As the person who's approved my holidays, you know that they tend to happen (laughs) a few days before. before. (laughs) Okay, so Amy's not a planner. It's not really really kind of messing with her mind, Daniel. I asked you once the day before. Yes, well, that is true. Look, I, I, I don't have any plans. No plans. In the weeks ahead. I have nothing on my in my diary. Yes. Okay. Is so that you, a scary so, thought? So you're not a planner either. Well, no. I, I I think I think that I'm less planny now because there's we don't really know what is what, point. We don't really know what's ahead. Yeah, we just have to live in the moment, Paul. Could be some great deals on flights because all these guys are, are, are staying at home. Whereas you could pack your, pa- pack your bags, have them by the door, and you know plan, plan for the best. And, wait, hope for the best, and then plan for the worst. And you know might have to cash a, a refund on the flight and change it a couple of times but, to get on the plane. Look, just in case you're a planner. Yeah. But, but no, but I'm, I'm saying I'm still going to take a holiday. No, I went to Byron Bay in August uh, exactly. in the middle of the pandemic. I actually think this is the most Paul Carp response ever, actually. To Capitalise on other people's <laughs> like, there, you know, lack of planning. But it's why Paul always does get the best holiday periods. <laughs> yes, he gets in first. <laughs> because he both plans and improvises. Yes. Anyway, on that note, as you can see, we've really enjoyed this, folks. Uh, we hope that you have enjoyed listening. Now that you've heard us demonstrate the ask me anything mode of the podcast (laughs) you guys can think about what questions you might want to bowl up to any of us we are all very visible either on social media or in our email accounts and we'll try and keep some records of of questions that you want answered in this format uh definitely like you know buy in because it's good for us because we, I think I said at the beginning, we 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 sort of socialise ourselves to think in certain ways, and it's good to have to think about the same problem from a different vantage point. So thank you for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you to Miles Martignoni, who's the EP of this show. Thank you to Hannah Izzard, who cuts it for us. We'll be back next week. <laughs> Smooth. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before Shopify, were you wondering where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. 